Hey, y'all. Have you ever heard of Old Gods of Appalachia? Well, if you haven't, you have now. Let me tell you. This is a horror anthology podcast, and it is absolutely amazing. They have characters. They have actors. They have different people doing voiceovers. It is so ridiculously dope. Y'all got to check this out. Um... I'm, I'm like, I'm enthralled. I'm, I I can't stop listening to it. This shit is crazy. And I got to tell you, all the actors are, they're straight, they're queer, they're black, they're of color, they're male, they're female, they're they, thems, they, thems. They just, this thing is so diverse, man. And, and there's, there's actually some poets involved with this that I actually admire. So this is a big deal. Y'all got to check out Old Gods of Appalachia wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, y'all. It's your fan, Black Fluid Poet, a.k.a. John S. Blake, coming to you live from my humblest of abode of books. Because I'm building the book collection back up, bitches! What, what? Um, this has been... Whew, an emotional roller coaster, y'all. So, December, I decide to take a friend up on an offer to live in LA. So, I move out to Gardena, California. I got my own bedroom in a trailer. It's a trailer, but I am happy, right? Um, it took some sacrifice. I, you know, I had to lose my whole book collection to do it. It, it happened. Went to Gardena, met some great people. My roommate, turned out to be a really struggling alcoholic who now um, she just found out she only has months to live because she has cirrhosis of the liver. She was drinking herself literally to death. But at the time uh, she became belligerent. I couldn't live with her anymore. I left. I ended up moving into transitional housing in in Los Angeles and uh, the transitional housing was rough. The neighborhood was rough. I didn't feel safe at all. Um, I was going to end up working two full-time jobs in order to stay in L.A. I was going to have zero time to write. I had no time or opportunity to make a podcast. I was like, this isn't working. I got to go. I was getting depressed again. And so it was time to go. I have a friend who's like, yo, I got some space in Georgia. I go to Georgia. And I'm like, no. No, I am in Statham, Georgia. It is the sticks. It is going to cost me $40 in Uber fare one way just to get to a job. I was like, yeah, no, that isn't working. <laughs> so I have another friend who was like, yo, come split this apartment with me in Texas. I was like, Texas? Oh, I, you must be drunk. I, are you out of your... They were like, look, <laughs> let's look at your options. <laughs> and I was like, bitch... Whatever. Okay, so I spend my last paycheck from my Los Angeles job on getting to Texas. I get here, and I love it. Like, I love the space I'm in. Um, I don't have a love for Texas just yet. The politics here frighten me. Greg Abbott runs the show. You already know the infrastructure is a nightmare. Um, but the person I'm living with I care about, they care about me. The space feels safe. I can be myself, at least indoors. I feel safe enough to be myself. Um, and I just got a, a good job. So 
the job doesn't need me full-time. I don't want to work full-time. I have space to write my book. And I'm recording a podcast. So I'm back. I'm back. I'm in Texas, but I am back. <sighs> so now that I'm here and I'm relatively settled in, still got some bugs to work out, but I'm here for a while, you know, and I'm going to write this book here. And... uh then I have time to focus and I see the world I'm living in. Yet another school shooting. More laws against the transgender population. More laws against the queer population. These politicians are corrupt. Joe Biden is being exactly who I expected him to be. A little better than Trump, but not much. Not much. He's auctioning off our land for oil drilling when he promised to be the climate change president. And then I just want to cry. I... If I focus long enough on the problem, I'm not going to see all the beauty that surrounds us. And if I focus on all the beauty that surrounds us, I am not going to be a part of the solution of our problems. So, at this point, it's each of our jobs to make a decision on how to balance problem solving and gratitude how to balance confronting corruption and peace of mind. Because we're going to have to figure out a way to have both. I will never stick my head in the sand and pretend that this shit ain't happening. I'm just going, you know, go to my job, focus on my kids, focus on my life. I can't because all the shit that's happening around me affects my life, my kids, my job, my ability to pay my bills. I can't do one without the other. I can take breaks. I can have moments. I can pause. But there is no world and no plan for myself that involves either ignoring the problems in life or ignoring my peace of mind that I need so much of. And this is where... You know, the rubber meets the road. This is where we separate, you know, we separate the misinformed and the overly exploited, overworked and exhausted from those of us who can can reach down deep and and find that extra, whatever that, that spirit or soul or energy is to keep moving forward. I want to tell people, you know what, fuck it. Just just do you. Just don't even worry about this. I want to be able to say that, but could you imagine? Could you just imagine all the civil rights leaders, all the LGBTQIA plus activists, could you imagine if any one of them or all of them said, you know what, fuck it, I'm just going to do me. 
Could you imagine that? Also, I remind myself that a lot of these activists, a lot of these heroes we have, they didn't see themselves as heroes when they got involved. They didn't have a plan to become these notorious, well-known names, household names. It wasn't in the cards for them at that time to be a picture on my wall or, you know, a section of my history book. They wanted to live in a better world at that present time. They weren't doing it for the future. They were doing it for that time. They were like, no, what's going on right now is wrong. And I'm going to do my best to try and change it. That's what they did. And we just don't acknowledge that enough. We don't acknowledge how hard so many people worked to make sure we had this opportunity right here to stand up for ourselves. Let me give you an example. In the 80s, Ronald Reagan refused to use the term AIDS. He would not say things like HIV. He would not talk about the LGBT community. He would not talk about drug addiction unless his wife was telling people to just say no. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we already know that the CIA absolutely allowed crack to fill in the ghettos. We know that the president was part of that whole movement and the crack epidemic ensued. The AIDS epidemic had also been there at that time. How it got there, please, people have all kinds of you know, ideas and conspiracy theories, but the bottom line was it was happening. I was going probably on average to two to three funerals per week. It wasn't just affecting the queer community. Understand at that time I was a recovering addict. And in 12-step fellowship meetings, a lot of people were getting sick and dying. And it was... You felt so powerless. But I'll tell you what happened. Because even in 12-step fellowship meetings, people didn't want to hug someone who was believed to be HIV positive. They didn't want to be in conversation with anyone who was diagnosed full-blown AIDS. They didn't want to hear about anybody's T-cell count. And it took activists. It took people who at first appeared annoying and relentless and, you know, pushy and intrusive before, you know, my cognitive dissonance began to dissipate. I was young. I was, I was 16. But I began to say, you know what? He's got a point. You know what? They have a point. You know what? What she's saying makes sense. And then, you know, the LGBT community started you know, going to cathedrals and having die-ins and marching in the street and, and holding public assemblies. And people were like, oh, God, you know, because as a society, we were not dealing with how absolutely oppressed queer Americans were. We weren't facing the facts about how poorly we treated addicts who were struggling with an addiction that they didn't ask for, nor did they invite the narcotics to the United States. There's this term in biopolitics 
um, enabling some to live while allowing others to die. The government doesn't necessarily, in biopolitical theory, kill some of its citizens that they don't f- that they don't feel are being productive enough for their society, but they will allow them to die, like not giving them free health care, not giving them a break on college tuition, like um, another great example would be getting rid of books that would enable the children of said citizens they don't want to become smarter, not funding the the educational system where some of the less desirable citizens dwell, allowing corruption to, to a degree that, though it should be dealt with as long as it's not affecting a specific class, <clears throat> Mississippi, Brett Favre, then it's considered acceptable. Allowing our resources to dwindle, our infrastructures to fail, like Flint, Michigan, like Jackson, Mississippi, like in Texas when people froze to death in trailers because they couldn't afford the heat in their own apartments. Biopolitics doesn't change until the citizens become a collective and band together and say, no, I'm not part of that group, but what you're doing to that group is wrong. And in order to do that, what's being asked of said citizens is they're going to have to sacrifice their comfy lifestyle. It takes a certain level of acknowledgement of one's own responsibility in the society in which they live. I have to acknowledge that, no, I'm not trans, but I'm willing to fight for that trans person because when you do, which this, which a certain aspect of our government is trying to eradicate all transgender living, when they're done with them, who else do they want to get rid of? Let's see. What other kinds of books are they banning? Oh, The Life of Rosa Parks. Makes me think that uh, maybe you don't like black people too much. So who else? Well, you know, gay marriage, we're not all for that. So when they get them with the transgender population, then they're moving on to other aspects of the queer population. And then they're going to move on to POC and black people and all of that. But here's the thing. Myself as an individual, I have to stop trying to wrap my brain around this humongous picture, around an entire wilderness, a forest, if you will, of politics and rhetoric and corruption. And I can do one thing. That's what I need to do, one thing. What is the one thing I can do? Okay, well, I can speak about it on my social media. Yes, I can do that. I can speak about it on my podcast. Yes, I can do that. I can encourage others to do the same. Hey, that's something I can do. And hope in the meantime, while I'm supporting transgender activists and queer activists and black activists, that I'm also encouraging the next generation. And I'm saying to them, do you see what is happening here? Let me show you what is happening here. 
And I remind them that although they are happy with their playtime and they are happy with their friends, they need to understand that in some way, shape, or form, they need to also have these conversations with their teachers, with their fellow classmates, and pay attention to what's happening. Because when we're done, and there will be a day when we're done, that torch has to be passed on to somebody else. And I know, I'm part of Gen X, and, you know... We're one step below boomers and you know, there was a lot of things that we could have done better. There's a lot of things that we didn't know what we didn't know. However, I am also part of the generation that dealt with real bullets during protests. I'm also a part of the generation that fought against the crack epidemic and the AIDS epidemic. I'm also a part of the generation where we had to finally start talking about something called date rape, which I didn't hear about until, God, I was 14, 15 years old, which now we know as coercion and sexual assault. It was the beginning of, of a lot of things and the end of others. You know, the Black Panthers were completely disintegrated. Um, Dr. King was assassinated two years before I was born. Malcolm X was assassinated six years before I was born. Um, you know, James Baldwin was, you know, uh, getting sick and he's starting, he was starting to die. And here I was, you know, this queer kid who didn't talk about his queerness with a dad that was struggling with addiction, living, you know, living in the street, hustling, a mom that was you know, struggling with borderline personality disorder and memories of sexual assaults and siblings who were struggling with drug addiction. And what happened to me was being the youngest, being quiet, being timid, I paid attention. And I saw what was happening to my family. And although I didn't know it then, I can tell you right now, capitalism destroyed my family destroyed my family. My mother worked herself to death. She worked herself to complete insanity. She struggled so hard to keep paying bills. My dad was so broken by racism that he didn't even know his own social security number. He refused to work a quote-unquote legitimate job. My oldest brother, through his addiction, contracted the AIDS virus. When he got sick with AIDS, there was nowhere for him to go. The hospital would only take you if they had a quarantine bed. Shelters would turn you away. Police wouldn't even arrest you. There was nowhere indoors for him to go. He just kept using. My brother Benny froze to death in an abandoned car because this country didn't care enough to help him. Because healthcare is costly. Because nonprofits don't always have what they need. My sister Lori, about as bipolar as anyone can be, dealt with sex trauma on her own through her drug addiction 
grew up angry and just as violent as my mother was. Tired of living in a society that didn't, didn't give a shit about her because she was a black woman. And my sister, talking to her today, talks in word salad. Her brain doesn't function the way at one time it could. She hurts. She can cry at the drop of a hat. She'll laugh in the most inopportune times. This country destroyed her spirit. My brother Frankie is drinking himself to death every, every chance he gets. He's finally, finally, he's in his 60s and he can finally admit that he's queer. He can finally admit he's bisexual. But I remember the 80s when everyone was afraid to let anyone know. When teachers were at risk of losing their jobs if anyone found out they were queer. Where cops used to pull up to the bars where queer events occurred and arrest every single person in there. And sometimes force some queer patrons to have sex with officers in order to gain their freedom. Many were raped, beaten, sometimes beaten to death. And if it wasn't for people who said, you know what? Fuck whatever consequences are coming. I'm standing up against this shit. And they went public about their sexuality. They went public about their addiction. They went public about any unattractive trait that society deemed them lesser than and said, damn those consequences. This is wrong. And wrong is wrong no matter what angle you stare at wrong at. It is wrong. And it took quite a few presidents. And it took a lot of protesting. And it took a lot of assemblies. And it took a lot of fighting in the street. And it took a lot of gay people dying on the streets of New York City from gay bashing. And it took a lot of funerals of people with AIDS. And it took spreading out their tapestries and their sneakers on the lawns of, of you know, government buildings in D.C. And it, it took forcing politicians to see that a lot of queer people are also constituents that they may need a vote from. That certain aspects that we were once struggling with, we are no longer struggling with now. For the most part. But then something happens. We have some peace. And when we have the peace, we maybe let down our guard a little bit. And while we're letting down our guard, these conservative politicians and their constituents were building plans. And back, you know, in the 80s, when we thought, you know, finally they stopped bombing abortion clinics and finally, you know, gay people could hold hands in the street without, you know, as many consequences as there used to be, we started to relax a little bit. We could go to a queer bar and we could laugh and we didn't have to worry about cops busting through the door. And while we were sitting on our loins, they overturned Roe v. Wade. They slowly got the Supreme Court justices they wanted. They slowly got the politicians in office they wanted. They spent their money in politics. Now, it's illegal for me to put on eyeshadow and walk through the streets of Tennessee. Now, I can't find a black history book in most Florida schools. Now, here in Texas, man, it's getting worse.
One thing I would suggest for people to do is that if you are about progressive values and you want to see progressive politicians make it, I need you to hear me and hear me now. You need to give them money. These progressive politicians are progressive for one reason and one reason only. They're still in office because people like you and me send them $5 every month. Ayanna Presley, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Elon Omar, Rashida Tlaib, many others, Cori Bush. The only reason why they're in office is because they have the money that they need to stay in office. They don't take money from super PACs. You don't see them at the CPAC conventions. You don't see them at APAC because they're getting their money from their direct constituents and from people who support them, who aren't necessarily their constituent, but support their ideals. As broke as I am, I try as best I can to send $25 every month, $5 to each politician. It's one less app on my phone, maybe two. It's, it's you know... It, It's one less pack of cigarettes, maybe two, every month. And it's worth it. Because every time I see AOC talking on the floor of the house, tears come to my eyes. Because I'm hoping to God she stays solid in her beliefs. I'm hoping that people keep donating to these causes because the day she has to start taking money from a super PAC, Her vocabulary will have to change or she will no longer be in office. I don't like the setup. I don't like this is how it works. But this is, in fact, how it works right now. And if we don't start putting our money behind the politicians we want to see in office, they will no longer exist. And this is something uh, that if we don't start doing really soon, We keep thinking it's somebody else's job to do it. Child, no. You need to send $5 to the politician you want to see stay in office. Katie Porter in California is another one. We have to fight for them as well as we fight for ourselves outside of Washington. They are speaking for us. And I know that, you know, a lot of people, even some of my listeners like, man, voting don't work, man, politics is bullshit, they're all corrupt. Stop telling yourself that shit. Because while you're telling yourself that shit, these conservative constituents and their politicians are moving ahead with their plans. They are not telling themselves voting doesn't work. They are not telling themselves politics is bullshit. They are getting their dreams fulfilled. And what are their dreams? To eradicate queer people from the United States. To get black people back below white supremacy. To keep Latinx people on the margins so they can keep working them for cheap labor and be exploited. Part of being woke is keeping your eyes wide open. And seeing that if we don't, if we don't get more involved in politics, we are doomed. We're going to take a break and I'll be back. Hey, y'all, uh, your fam, Black Fluid Poet. Check it out. If you love this podcast, I want to thank you for favoriting the podcast because it means the world to me. However, the way I can get more advertisers is to have more subscribers. If advertisers um, see 
that um, I have a lot of subscribers, they will be more willing to give me opportunities to advertise for them. So in order for me to get these ads, I need to get to a decent amount of subscribers. So you come here to anchor.fm and you go to support and you can pick 99 cents, 4.99 or 9.99. Please feel free to pick 99 cents. I, I, I am overjoyed at anyone who wants to support my dream of getting this podcast taking off. You know what I'm saying? So please just consider it. If I could get a thousand subscribers, I could get out of this poverty thing. You know what I'm saying? Because, yo, the struggle is real. Y'all take care. Hey, y'all, we're back. Um, I want to talk about some of my own personal insecurity um, when it comes to romance. I'm struggling with my own inner homophobia, right? And my own misogyny that I often utilize against myself. Being a genderqueer person, being a gender fluid person, I, I sometimes feel uncomfortable queering my gender, right? I sometimes feel uncomfortable adding eyeshadow to my face. I sometimes feel uncomfortable wearing a long skirt because I'm afraid of what it means to other people who see me. I'm afraid to be considered lesser of a, of a man's man or, you know, I'm afraid that a woman I'm attracted to won't believe that I'm still attracted to women or she just won't find me attractive at all. I'm afraid that I will never be in love again because I tell myself in certain forms and fashions that I'm unlovable, that I'm not worthy, that I probably shouldn't date a woman with children because it's just going to make the children's heart, the children's lives a little harder, or I don't want to have to go with her to meet her family because there's definitely going to be some homophobes around and I don't want to have to deal with the shit she's going to get from her family about it. So I stay by myself and I don't, I don't take opportunities to date because I feel like a burden. I feel like I'm causing more problems for other people. You know, my mom, I remember my mom telling me once, um, you know, have you ever talked to Justin about the fact that he's, he's black? And I said, no, my son, because my son is... Uh, you know, my complexion, he's got curly hair, but not an afro. And, you know, he could, could, quote, end quote, pass for, you know, being Italian or Persian or, you know, maybe Puerto Rican or whatever um, due to his olive complexion. And, and so my mother said, does he know he's black? And I said, well, we haven't had that talk yet. He was like three, you know. And she said, don't tell him. And I said, Ma, what are you talking about? And she said, John... Just, just let him have peace. And I remember being so fucking angry. Like, after everything we've been through, for me to still be here, standing in front of the world saying, I'm black. You want me to hide that from my own fucking son? She said, John, do you remember being beaten by the kids in Lodi? Do you remember when the girl you were so in love with uh, couldn't date you anymore because her parents forbade it? Do you remember the other girl that you loved 
whose parents offered you money to leave her alone? Do you remember the fact that your father was nearly beaten to death for going out with me to a restaurant and they threw me into the fucking river, pregnant with you? Yeah, you're proud. Yeah, you're black. Yeah, it's great. But do you really want him to go through it? And I remember looking at my mother and saying, that's not up to me. That's up to society. And I have to remind myself that what happens in a relationship that I get involved in, what happens between us to each other is between us to each other. But what happens to us from the outside world is up to the outside world. And I can't be anybody but myself. If I lose friends because of it, so be it. If she chooses to be with me and she loses, you know, if if they lose family relations after they've made the choice to be with me, I have to allow that to be. I can't make the decisions for other people who choose to love me. I can't say, no, I'm not going to let you love me because you have no idea how bad it's going to get. That's not my decision to make. And that's hard. It's hard for a person like me who does care truly for the people that I love. But I can't make those decisions for them. If they choose to endure the consequences of being with me, I'm going to have to allow, I'm going to have to learn to allow that to go on. I'm going to have to allow myself to give them permission to love me and take whatever consequences come their way and stay in the moment and remind myself that this is not my fault. That love in public is what justice is supposed to look like. And if we're not receiving love in public, then the world is still just unjust and we have more work to do. I'm going to stay a loving person because that is who I am. With all the mistakes and all the flaws and the people I've hurt in the past and the mistakes that I've made that I haven't forgiven myself for, the happiness that I still challenge myself to achieve even though I don't think I deserve it some days because of things I've done, I'm still a loving person at my core and I'm going to maintain that. And in maintaining myself as a loving person, I have to keep love as the top priority in my life and that means fighting injustice and that means standing up for those who are being bullied in one way or another and it also means seriously, truly, genuinely, authentically means I have to allow other people to show me love. No matter what consequences they endure, if they choose to love me and love is important to me, then I have to allow them to love me. It's more than just asking for help. It's allowing people to show me love even when it's causing them some difficulty. I'm not a burden. I am somebody's love. And that is gonna have to be enough while we're in this fight. Y'all, you be sure to enjoy your day. Remember to love yourself. And if you fall short, you can start your day over at any time, anywhere, with anybody because you are worth starting your day over with love. And I'll talk to you later.